right. Well, uh, welcome back, everyone, for another episode of Life on Side B. This is Josh. And for co-hosts, it's me and Elizabeth today. Hey, Elizabeth. Hello. Hi, everybody. Yes, Ah. I'm here. So good to... I was just telling Josh before we started recording, we haven't just done an episode, just the two of us together. Honestly, Josh, I don't think we've done it since my first episode. (gasps) Oh really? my gosh. Like, yeah. We had one recently with Henry where you weren't supposed to be on the episode, but And we then just, I jumped in. <laughs> we took you to church. So you had to you had to jump. <laughs> I had to jump, to jump in. in. I had the spirit was calling and I yes. had to speak. Well, it's not just us today. We are joined by Ed Shaw. Hey Ed. Hi. Very good to be with you. Uh, yes, welcome, we- Ed. We are so glad we were able to make the time zones and everything <laughs> coordinate. You know, yeah, everyone, we are recording this the day after Thanksgiving. And um, as we were recording it, Ed was like, I'm available Thursday. And I was like, we're not. <laughs> <laughs> classic, classic Englishman, totally ignorant of what is happening <laughs> in the world. Not ignorant. Honestly, it makes sense because yes. it would just be another Thursday. And it's not um, what's happening in the world. It's what's happening in the U.S. So we yes. we think we're the center of the world, Ed. We need people like yeah. you to remind us, oh, yes, we're not we, the end we, all. Yeah, <laughs> we're the people that you think we're the center of the world. Honestly, <laughs> even as an American, when I lived overseas, it would happen to me where I would be like, hey, fam, what are you doing today? And they're like, it's Thanksgiving. And I'm like, oh, oh, oh that's right. <laughs> Enjoy the day. <laughs> mm-hmm. Location is everything. It really is. Um, well, we today we're continuing our reclaim. Well, first of all, you know what? Before we get into that, Ed would love for you to introduce. You know, we know you, and I feel like then I assume every all of our listeners would know you. But could you just introduce yourself a little bit, like um, for anyone who might not? Yeah, well, I'm English, um, as my voice portrays, um, and I am speaking to you from Bristol in the UK, which is West Coast City, where I am the pastor of a Anglican church plant in the centre of um, the city that's been going about, well, nine years. Um, I do that part-time. Um, with the other half of my time, well, other half of my time, a smaller proportion of my time, I'm um, the ministry director of an organisation called Living Out, um, which is just about to celebrate its 10th birthday. And Living Out is a ministry based in the UK, and uh, we were founded by a group of, um, well, and this is where we're going to get into, get into language and identity stuff already, isn't it? Yes. Like, like years ago, we would have described ourselves as a group of same-sex attracted uh, pastors in the UK mm. who were fed up of our stories not being heard um, in the UK context and wanted to get... Uh, out into the church world and into the public square here in the UK, the fact that there are plenty of Christians who same-sex attracted, as we put it then, um, and living in the light of biblical teaching about marriage and sex, traditional understanding. Mm. So, yeah, 10 years ago, we launched with a website, and we really naively thought, well, we'll put a website out there with a few sort of videos telling our stories, and then we'll walk away, and life will return to its normal pattern and actually what's happened over the last 10 years is a website's become a ministry and I spend and, and a team spend quite a lot of our time um, in the UK context maintaining the website, which is constantly uh, adding uh, to, which we're constantly adding to, uh, speaking um, both uh, training church leaders and also speaking in various church contexts um, in the UK and Europe and every so often a little bit further abroad as well. Yeah. Um, what do you want to know? That's that. That's that's amazing. That's, I'm talking about myself forever. Is that enough? <laughs> that's great. I love it because at Living Out, you guys also have a podcast as well, right? We do. We yeah. We we came late to podcasting, but I think it was one of those COVID things, wasn't it? Everybody started podcasting, Everyone's, and we thought, why yeah. haven't we got a podcast? And we found that our podcast is now the thing that people most regularly 
uh, thank us for and appreciate. And we are on season season eight of something like that. And love love the opportunity to connect with people through a podcast. Oh, awesome! I just wanted to make sure we got a plug in there for that because I've I've listened yes. to it a few times. I love to I love to hear other podcasts in this realm, and because we we need more of them. And so every time I see one pop up, I'm like, oh! And especially I love seeing ones that are outside of American context because there's living out, and then there's like one in Portuguese. That's like, and so I'm always intrigued. So anyway, well, as Ed alluded to, we are here talking about reclaiming identity. Um, and I'm just so excited for this conversation because this is going to being able to engage in the cultural context of stuff. And even as you yes. talked about that, um, Elizabeth, do you have any initial thoughts on this topic? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is a big one. I know. For me, in thinking about my own experience as, well, my own experience as a queer Christian, but then my experience of kind of getting into this conversation, Mm -hmm. even before coming out, this was the topic. Like, sure, sure, we could talk about, um, you know, affirming versus unaffirming theology. And I, I think that that matters. That's another kind of theological debate within this conversation but I think even more so maybe or at least equally so was the conversation around how do you identify what does your identification mean in light of your faith in light of and for me you know in light of my ethnic background as well like how Mm. comfortable am I as a black as a black woman as a Mexican woman where what is the hierarchy of identity yes. and, mm-hmm. and all of this so i think i'm excited about this mm-hmm. too because i think it's something that we are constantly going to be grappling with mm-hmm. and language changes rapidly rapidly yes. so and identity is a conversation around language i mean obviously there's more to it than that but yeah. i think initially when we're talking to people and we're sharing our identity our identities it's all about language so how has language changed and ed you've already kind of spoken to that when you guys started it was same-sex attracted and now i'm curious like where where are you guys now in in that conversation you know because language has just changed yeah and we we deliberately picked the language of same-sex attraction in the uk context because it was very unfamiliar language over here and we were wanting to communicate something about our Mm. sexuality but we were not wanting to use the gay language mm-hmm. uh, at the time because we felt that that was too tied up in identity politics in the UK. So we deliberately said, let's use this language of same-sex attraction. And interestingly, we had very little clue 10 years ago of the freight that that language has in the US wow. context. Hmm. So oh, for yes, us, yes. it was really neutral language. Um and it was only when we started to chat with people in the States and realise um, how attached it had been mm-hmm. to reparative therapy, ex-gay movement, et cetera, et cetera, Exodus International, that we realised that it worked in the UK context because people suddenly went, well, what, what, what do you mean by that? And we were able to have what we felt were really good conversations. But in the US context, oh, people thought, oh, we know where you're coming from. And actually it wasn't where we were coming from, but they mm. presumed that we were part of... Yeah the cultural understanding of same-sex attraction or experiencing same-sex attraction that was bound up in, a, in in quite a different place to the place we find ourselves in a UK context. So, yeah, so 10 years ago, we, we chose the language, uh, we used the language, and we still use the language. So mm-hmm, I would, mm-hmm. in those contexts, when I'm talking about I'm same-sex attracted, I would tend to use same-sex attracted or gay pretty interchangeably, except when I'm in... Uh, a secular context so for instance if i'm doing um secular media over in the uk i don't usually use the language of same-sex attraction mm-hmm. when yeah. i'm speaking to younger generations i tend to use gay more than same-sex attracted because there is a danger and what's that that people there's sometimes the potential in using the same-sex attraction language in the uk to open up the conversation because people want to know what you mean though sometimes uh, particularly amongst younger generations, particularly in the secular media, um, people can just think that you're a little bit ashamed or you're pathologizing the experience of same-sex attraction in unhelpful ways. Yeah, yeah. I tend to use my language dependent on the audience. But what is also interesting is in the last 
few years, the policing of language, which I think has been a big thing in the States, mm-hmm. you're alluding to that, has spread over here. Um, a book came out this year from an evangelical church pastor in the UK, not just criticising me for using the language of gay, but also for using the language of same-sex attraction. What as do you want? <laughs> and, and it, which is extraordinary. And the language I think he would be happy me using is, I experience same-sex attraction. Um, because wow. he's, so, he's so concerned <laughs> about it being an identity marker. So um, mm. that's it. It, I wish you guys could see Josh's face now. right now. <laughs> the eye rolling. I, I, I want to hear the rest of that sentence. I really do. <laughs> but Josh is killing me. I, I've never seen somebody's eyes roll so uh. far back. <laughs> yeah. Continue, Adam. Sorry. <laughs> no, well, I mean, it, in some ways, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for um, acting out what I, what I feel, really. I mean, it mm. has been extraordinary in the UK context. I think as as some as some pastors some christians just uh, i think allowing fear to drive them more yeah. than anything else more than faith they they're worried that an an organization like living out with people like me and pastoral ministry who are being open and honest about sexuality they think they're beginning to worry that we might be the trojan horse yeah. that we might be the people that corrupt the church and that using language like same-sex attracted like gay is is part of that and five ten years ago nobody was policing me using that sort of language nowadays Mm. we're we're being policed not quite as much as you guys are over in the states but in some contexts we're well on the way even as we insist that using that language isn't Mm -hmm. all we want to say about our identity all we want to say about who we are People yes, think yes. as soon as you use the gay or same-sex language, you are insisting on that being the core part of your identity, the core mm-hmm. part of your answer to the question, who am I? Which it isn't, mm-hmm. but the presumption seems to be it is. And I think the presumption's being driven by fear yeah. of more than anything else. Uh, yeah, I, my eye rolling just comes from the place of, I, I feel like it comes from a few things. And first of all, just how much this, especially in American context, which I'm, I'm so glad we can share the gift with you of all of this. You're welcome. It's very kind of you. You're welcome, Britain. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I, I, I feel like it, it just comes from like, we are still having this conversation kind of thing of, you know, because especially mm-hmm. in the American context of how much that has been a part. I think it also comes from a place of, yeah, with language, I, I feel like especially once you're bilingual, you realize the place and the flexibility of terms that term words are very powerful, but they're also just they're contextual. And so they mean mm-hmm. one thing. That's why I'm like when I heard about the place that same sex attracted attracted can play in the British conversation like that's so cool I'm so glad there's not a weight there it's kind of like I helped with with a translation job in Swedish I don't speak Swedish but I was helping other translators working in it and then they translated gay as homosexual and I was like um um I don't think that that works and they're like no it works in our context and then Mm -hmm, getting to speak mm -hmm. with activists who are like no yeah that's the term we use we call ourselves homosexuals and it was like fascinating i don't understand Mm -hmm. but cool that's great i'm so glad that that's the word that you use um Mm -hmm. and being able to have that freedom but i i do think you really hit on a point that many times this comes from fear rather than faith and like where that whole thing engages Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and i i'm thinking I I love the fear thing, and I would love to talk more about that. I also think, I think it also comes with how we relate to our own identity. Because, Because language is one piece, right? But it's also like, how do we understand ourselves? Which is another thing. Oh, There's so many ways that we could talk about this. Like, I want to hear Josh, like, how did you start relating to your own identity when you came out? And Ed, I would love to hear the same thing. So, so many mm-hmm. questions. But I think the first thing I'm thinking is, uh, or I guess the point for me is how I relate to my own identity. Again, like as somebody who's coming from a minority, yeah. cultural minority experience, mm-hmm. Um 
when I say that I'm black, I'm not saying that is the only thing that makes up who I am. But because I think because I, especially now things are different again, language and experience and culture is changing. But growing up, that almost felt like a threat to other people because it was like, why do you need to point that out? Aren't we all the same? I don't see color. I, You know, you're just like me. And I, I was always really perplexed by that. Why? Yeah. Well, I think, and I, I, maybe you guys have more insight to this, but like the way that majority culture understands themselves distinctions aren't really that necessary. Why? Mm-hmm. Because we take up the majority of, of the way that we express ourselves in the culture, the, the water that we swim in. But for me saying, Hey, this is a, a difference about myself. I want to mm-hmm. point out this, you know, differentiation. It wasn't saying this is all that I am, but it's saying this is an element that maybe it's fear that you feel threatened mm-hmm. by there's something scary about it. Or maybe mm-hmm. it's it's just, quite frankly, I'm not used to other people distinguishing themselves yeah. in any kind of cultural way. And I think that that does mm-hmm. relate to the LGBTQ conversation. And I love using the word queer. So it does yeah. relate to the queer conversation. Mm-hmm. And I'll stop there. I, w- I want to hear your, your guys' thoughts on that. Anything? Um, no. <laughs> I I would say no. I think you really hit on a big thing with majority culture, the whole thing of when you're swimming in the water, do you realize you're wet? Kind of thing of distinctions. They I don't think they realize what the main identity is. It's kind of like the conversation that I'll have with some of my family members, where it'll be about music, where it's like, well, why do we have to have Latino music and you know, black music and all of this. And they're like, where's the white music? And I'm like, it's everything. All, all of it. All of it is white music. You just don't realize it because it's all you listen to and you don't have the You title. never had to distinguish it. You never yeah, had you to never distinguish had to. it. But it is there. And it is the main thing that you consume, even if you don't realize that that's what it is. And so I think that it's that like a fish doesn't know it's wet until it's out of water kind of situation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Like, you know, that was my whole thing with understanding my American identity until living outside of the United States and like the different aspects of that kind of thing. Um, And I think the hard part is, is that, yeah, there, there becomes this fear that the distinctions, um, I, I don't even know. I think that the I I'm afraid to 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 make delineations like <laughs> like determinations. I'm I'm thinking I'm not. <laughs> no, well no, I'm afraid to make <laughs> determinations because to make sure that I actually know what I'm talking about is really what my yeah. thing is. But um I I think that the biggest thing is is like when when you are explaining part of your identity um, it's so hard for majority people to not see how that just doesn't encompass everything about you. Um, because mm. I think their mm. identities subtly consume everything about them without them even realizing it. Yeah. But, but at the same time, I think that there is, they, everybody's able to yeah. have some kind of nuance and balance. Mm-hmm. We all do, yeah. you know, like, <laughs> My husband is as straight as they come, as much as I've tried desperately to find out some kind of queerness in him. It's just not happening. And like <laughs> him being him being straight doesn't identify like it, it's not the whole whole part of who he is. But he know, but he maneuvers the world and he, the lens that he looks through in the world is from a straight male white perspective. Mm-hmm. But he's also like a huge pop culture nerd. And that's a huge part of his identity. He's a father. Like, we all know how to, to maneuver life holding multiple mm-hmm. identities. There's just something about being same-sex attracted, gay, queer, whatever, trans, that just, it, yeah, it just ruffles some feathers. And for some reason, people feel like, no, you can't. There's no nuance to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ed, you were going to say something. Well, yeah, well, I suppose part of my experience is spending particularly my teenage years and 20s 
desperately not wanting anybody mm. to ever know about my sexuality. And in a school context over here in the 1990s, you know, being gay was only ever used as an insult. Um, you avoided the impression that you might be gay, anything that might give people a clue. I, you would run a mile uh, to to avoid anybody describing you as gay. Yeah. So that, you know, that is part of that's part of my backstory. Um, and obviously there were fears amongst a lot of us over in the UK that coming out as same-sex attracted gay would mean that we would be pushed out of the church. Um, and so there's an element to which the same-sex attracted language was us dipping the toe in the water to see mm-hmm. whether we could continue to serve as pastors in evangelical churches and be open on us about our sexuality. Um, and the same-sex attracted language is much safer than the gay language, which was, you know, mm-hmm. could be perceived and has been perceived and is perceived as a step too far uh, for some people. But as I've been more open and public about sexuality, I found it very helpful, for instance, to to start reading about other gay experiences, to start reading gay poetry yeah. and gay literature, and to realise that those experiences that I had as a teenager and in my 20s, which were completely isolating experiences, have been felt mm-hmm. by other people. Mm-hmm. And other people have put what I felt into words that are just so beautiful and the words wow. that deeply connect with me and words that allow me to process what it was like to be, yeah, to be a to be a minority group. And as soon as again I use that language, there are going to be some people yeah. thinking, oh my goodness, he's embracing minority group politics. But it is really difficult being a teenager in constant conversations about, you know, even the classic conversation between teenagers of who do you fancy? And I can remember being in conversations about who you fancy. And the honest answer to the question of the person asking me was you. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't say it because mm-hmm. we were hanging out talking about the girls we were fancy. And I used to have these people I used to pretend I fancied. I, you know, I, I can remember conversations when the answer was not, the girl that's just walked past who I'm pretending I'm going to fancy because I've picked up the other guys fancy her. Therefore, let's jump on that bandwagon. Yes. It would be the person asking me who I fancy, but no way wow. can I say that. Yeah. And you know, just discovering that that's, that's been the part of other people's experience mm. and other people get that has been really precious to me yeah. and really helpful to me. Um, and it's, you know, I'm not saying as a result, is my most important identity but i'm saying it's been really helpful for me and i'm sure it's helpful for others to find out that there are other people like them and some people have expressed what that's like mm-hmm. and have written about what that's like and sung about what that's like written mm. beautiful poetry about that, what, what that's like in a way that just helps yeah. and heals yeah and i and i feel like as i'm thinking through this more i i feel like some of that fear also comes from a thing of that I, different identities somehow, because I've heard this in, you know, these videos of people, you know, um, where it'll be like, oh, this is just, they're just trying to divide up the church. And I think it's because majority culture often doesn't understand unity without sameness. Mm-hmm. Like it can't understand unity with diversity. Like that, because a lot of times when I see like, okay, what's the language you want us to use? You just really want us to pretend like this experience is not important to us. And the the thing is, is I'm sorry. In my point of life where I'm at now, I'll admit there is a lot of life decisions that are wrapped up in my sexuality. Like there are. Mm-hmm. And it's just because it has had a formative experience in my life. It plays a formative place in my life. And honestly, the the aspects that that make me more afraid, like how my sexuality influences my decisions is very apparent to me. I know it because yeah. I work in this space. I have a partner. I have all of these different kinds of things that are like very visible in my mind and in my the forefront mm-hmm. of my mind when I'm making decisions. What scares me is the parts of my identity, not even sexuality, just in like I talk about, like being an American, that there were ways that being an American were influencing my decisions before I even realized it in ways I had no idea. And those are the kind of ways that, that more, that more scared me. But when it comes to my sexuality, of course it makes a difference in how I make decisions. It, as you said, the, when you see other people's experiences and you read their stories, you go, yeah, that's me. And now I understand how that has made me like brought me to where I am at 
Like, I'll say this. I don't think I would be a Christian without my sexuality. I don't think I would. Wow. It's just, it's mm-hmm. the reality. And so, um, but then I think that that brings, be, it just goes back, it just constantly goes back to fear. And and I'm many times at the point, I'm like, y'all, I don't have time for that. Because also, I would also make the argument that identity, like the whole identity in Christ, I would argue yes. that it's not a biblical, like, situation. I like to more talk about abiding <laughs> in Christ, which we can get into, but um, yeah. Anyway. Yes. I want, I want to actually, Josh, so that was, I want to be the devil's advocate, right? Because how often probably do all three of us hear this and probably all of our listeners as well of, well, but isn't your identity in Christ? What about your identity in Christ? And the verse that always comes up is, you know, from Galatians 2, which I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ who lives within me, um, the life that I now live in the body, I live in, by faith in uh, in the Son of God, uh, who lives within me. So, like that is what I've heard like all the time, um, and I I find it irritating. But if I might be the devil's advocate, like what do we do with that? I, I mean, I could tell you what I want to do with it. But what do we what do we do when people come at us with? The, this verse and other verses like that to justify this idea of why do you even care about this or why is this even significant to you? Aren't you a Christian? Don't you? Isn't your identity wrapped up in who Christ is? Yeah. Ed, any thoughts? <laughs> well, I've got to, you know, I've, I've got to be open and honest. And I think that I, I, I've used the identity in Christ language myself in, you know, the same sex attraction, the, and the church is a book I wrote, and I and and I say that the first misstep the church has How made. How have you not plugged your book yet? Oh Ed? yeah, like, your whole bio. I, you didn't even. I'm an English. No, I'm an, come on. I'm an Englishman. We are used. To- <laughs> I'm only doing it because I've got to confess a sin. All right, I'm going to Google you so that by the end of the episode, I can fill in all the gaps. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna put a link to the book in the show notes. Okay, thank you. All right, continue. So sorry. <laughs> And in the US, it's probably it's called same sex attraction in the church. And I said, you know, one of the problems, one of the missteps we've made, or the society's made, is your identity is your sexuality. And I would mm. say to a lot of my non-Christian friends and to secular society, they do mm. make sexuality mm. the one thing that's important yeah. about them. And mm. I, and I, in that, in that sense, I stick with my chapter and mm. I stick with the criticism. I think um, I would want to perhaps nuance a little bit more what I said. I, I agree entirely that identity language is actually, again, a secular import into the Bible. Um, mm. Union with Christ, I think, is is the most helpful language. You know, I'm united to Christ. I'm God's dearly loved child, God's dearly loved son or daughter. I think that is the language I'm certainly want to in- inhabit much more. The fact that I can call God Father, the fact that my Ident- the main identity market is what God has done in Christ for me, um, and Amen. a shorthand a shorthand for that sometimes is my identity is in Christ. But I do think that that has sometimes been used, as you've both pointed out, to sort of to say to to, to us, you can use no other identity markers when everybody uses loads of identity markers constantly huge amount of hypocrisy in the church of people who will I, I come across this when it comes to you know providing a little bio when you go and speak mm-hmm. on something and I can remember once uh, somebody getting in contact with me saying could you send your details through and I sent my details through and they said but you've said nothing about your lovely wife and I went <laughs> email back saying have you noticed what I'm speaking on it's <laughs> really embarrassed that a silence said oh yeah there's going to be no lovely wife coming along but they just expected they expected that part of my identity would be me talking about my wife and my mm. two that was just that was just seen as a key part of my identity that I would need to communicate to this wow. church we were speaking at yeah. um if I'd said oh I am gay at the end. They'd be really bothered by that. All that's taking, but they were expecting me to talk about my wife and kids. Yes. And I want to say that exposes the fact that for a lot of people, their fundamental identity is being a father, a, a mother, mm-hmm. a husband, or wife. And I'm not wanting to denigrate that. That is an important part of their identity. Sure. 
but it's not the only thing and we shouldn't yeah. police one group and not sometimes challenge other people that their identity is totally wrapped up in the job that they have or their marital status or their children or the number of grandchildren or the books that they've written. I've just fallen into that trap. You know, loads of other things are apart from sexuality. Well, can you imagine, Ed, if what you, your response to whoever was inviting you to speak was, my lovely wife and children, my identity's in Christ. Mm. I'm sorry, sir. I would, <laughs> like, I, even if I had a lovely wife and children, I would never mention them because I am a, a son of the most high. I don't, I don't care about my kids and my spouse. Like they would never, they, they couldn't imagine anyone to do that. But, but you bring up the great point is it shows that there are some identities that we find culturally and socially acceptable within the church. And, you know, maybe even that we praise mm -hmm. more than others. That is an identity of praise and power to be someone who's married or has kids. You've, you've hit the pinnacle of, Christianity. Yeah. Um, so that identity we, we will accept. Well, and because it, it, we understand that your marital status does change your experience in a way that it's going to flavor how you engage in situations. You know, like we understand mm -hmm. that the degrees that you have change how you engage on a topic if you're a speaker. These are why we want to know these things when someone comes to speak because they are parts of a person that help us understand kind of what we're getting yes. into when we engage mm -hmm. with them. And I also kind of going back to another thing you said, I, I am glad you brought up that it is very possible. I run into it a lot for LGBT people to make all of this our full identity, like just over encompassing mm. identity. Like I, I want to clarify that we're not saying that doesn't happen. I had a situation where I was going to a event and it was with a lot of conservative people. And I don't really care if people in that situation know that I'm gay, but it's one of those moments where you're like, Oh, okay. We're going to see, we're going to see how this goes. And I was going with a young, young gay person who was like, I, I just, what if no one in there knows I'm gay? And I'm like, why do you care? Like, <laughs> because I think that sometimes when we're, especially, especially when we're in our earlier part of this journey, after it's been suppressed for so long, there can be an over, there can be an over excitement that you want everyone to know. And that's an organic part of, part of this journey. But we can sometimes get into a place for various reasons. And it's not to say that, like, I, I think that there are different natural reasons on the journey why we might be there, but we can just be so focused in this. Um, but I think in the general, it's it's that way of being able to say, hey, here is something that has played such an important place in my story, in my life. And I think for you to truly know me and for you to understand me, you need to know this. Because without it, you're just not going to really understand where I'm coming from. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. Go ahead, Ed. Sorry. Yeah, and we want to be one of the lovely things about human relationships, isn't it? Is is really being known. And it was interesting yes. when I did when I did start being open and honest about my sexuality. It just helped people make sense of me and really get to know me in ways they hadn't known before. And there was part of my life that I was holding back, and it and it did puzzle people. You know, I can remember somebody in my small group, um, you know, who was a married woman with three kids, and she said, "You know, often." you'd turn up and things would clearly be hard in your life. And, and I'd be thinking, what's hard in his life? You're single. You've got all these friends. You've got loads of good things going on. You know, what, what's, what's, what, what are you complaining about? And then she found out that there was this part of my experience that, that she'd never known about and that, you know, has brought great things into my life, mm -hmm. but also has brought a lot of grief into my life. And it, it meant that she got to know me. And withholding that information up to that point meant that there was – yeah, there wasn't the sort of openness that allowed me to really be known and yes. to be loved and for, the, for other people to say, I know you and I love you. And and actually being open honest about some of the deepest, hardest things in our lives is an invitation, isn't it, to people to, mm. to be intimate with us in a really good, non-sexual, helpful, um, Christ-like way. Yeah. Amen to that. Well, and I, I think that that I think that that is the biggest bonus of what identity brings. And it's, it's, 
in community with other people. It's how having other people understand us better. But I know in my life, it's also being known by mm-hmm. God, being known by myself and being known by God in a way that I, I held off for so long. Um, and I know I've talked about this on the podcast before, but in many ways, I could have gone the rest of my life not saying anything as someone who's married and who has kids and who, you know, in almost every way presents pretty, you know, heteronormative, except when I, when I did come out to my brother, oh my gosh, it was one of the, like the scariest things. And he did the thing that I hate that people do. Maybe Ed, you like this. I don't know, but I hated this. He was like, I kind of already knew. And I was like, Dang it. I hate it when people say they I know. keep it to yourself. I don't want to know that you already knew. Yeah. <laughs> I was hiding it really well. So don't tell me you, you caught on to me. Um, but I think what was the most beautiful part of coming out to me was being able to say to myself, I know who I am. Like something that I wanted to hide so deeply within myself. I remember looking in the mirror as a teenager and a young adult, like in my 20s, and saying, just say it. Just say it. Like, look at yourself in the mirror and just say it. And I was like, I can't do it. I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to. And I would do this like, pretty often, weirdly enough. Um, and now I can just say it. And I'm like, wow, I, I'm not trapped or scared by who I am anymore. Like this one piece about who I am, I'm not scared of it anymore. And I can pray and say, Lord, like, what does this mean to me and you? What does this queer experience mean to me and you? How, how does this shape who I am as a, as a follower of Christ? When I could never say that before. And in many ways, sometimes I wish I could take it back because it's so dang difficult because it's so complicated, Mm -hmm. complicated. But at the same time, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it for the world. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting. (laughs) Go ahead. Well, no, I mean, just off the back of that, yeah, I think we sometimes need to be open to the possibility that actually the person that says for the first time I'm gay and say sex attracted and queer actually might in that moment be making it much less of an identity than it ever was before amen because i think when i was when i wasn't when i wasn't being open it was the all-consuming thing it was the thing i most worried about i I was so preoccupied about what will happen when people Mm. find out i had no way of getting help i've never and it became a really really big thing and actually although it wasn't my identity in public it was my identity in private and going public and saying those sort of words was, I think, the most helpful thing in, in it not being an identity. It helps something um, lose it its not power a when it's no longer a secret. Yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it gains it gains a new kind of, not power, mm-hmm. but it, it takes a new place in our lives yeah. that I find to be way more healthy. And kind of, I, I think, related to this is a dear friend of mine who identifies as non-binary was saying when we were talking about gender, Um, they were saying, you know, when I tell people that I'm non-binary, when I, when I ask people to use they, them pronouns, I'm actually not trying to make this a big deal. Like me asking this and saying this is me saying, can I just say this up front? So then we don't have to have a huge conversation about it. Can I say this so that I can have a natural deep dialogue and relationship with you that isn't wrapped up in this experience in my life, because every time you use the wrong pronoun, every time you use my dead name, every time these gender specific things come up, remind me in my subconscious, in my conscious, in my fear and doubt that I am, that I'm trans. And I don't want to hurt every time I talk to you. I just want to be every time I talk to you. So if I just say this, I'm not saying it to make some kind of political, social statement. I'm just saying it so that I can just exist with you in a deeper way. And I I was blown away by that. Mm. I thought that was really beautiful and insightful. Yeah. No, I think that there really is a power to that. Like in the sense of like being able to go, I as a queer person, I'm actually making this a lot. You're making it a lot bigger deal than we are kind of thing. And yes. I think another aspect that came up to me, came up about my experience when you were talking, Elizabeth, was um, 
you know, I'm it's it's a joke and I've accepted it and I've embraced it. I'm a pretty overtly gay person. Like you can see me walking no, down the street. What I know. Never. Never. <laughs> I know. I love it. Even my own counselor sometimes he's like, Do people ever not know you're straight? Like gay? And I'm like, <laughs> Yes. Yes, John. They always oh. know I'm gay. Okay. <laughs> it's just the reality. Um but it's, it, you know, it even speaks to the very fact of the first time I ever heard the word gay was being bullied. The first time mm. I was called mm. bully, I was called gay on the playground, didn't know what it meant. And so I went home and I looked it up on the Internet wow. and I found gay wow. porn. And then that's the day my parents found out I was gay. Mm. Like all of these mm. things are linked to that. And so the crazy part for me is I don't even have to say that I'm gay and people will already make the assumption. And so my whole thing is, is I'm like, you're already making these assumptions about me before I even open my mouth. So like I've done a thing where I've like spoken at churches where I won't actually talk about it as my own experience. I'll more talk about Mm -hmm, it theoretically. mm And people are already making the assumptions on it. And I'm like, you're the one doing this, not me. And so I'm just helping you clarify what place this actually holds in my life. When you're the one making judgment calls based on how I talk, based on how I walk, not even necessarily how I dress, but many times how I dress. But um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but like it's the whole package, it's the whole, Josh. Let's, let's be honest. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> and I have come to terms with that, and I'm at peace with that. But the reality is, it's beautiful. Yeah, it's beautiful. But the reality is, is we have something that, like, for in my life, I have something that was placed on me from a young age, way mm-hmm. before I even had words for it, and then me being reclaiming those words and bringing Come on. peaceful power to that is said, well, you can't do that. Yeah. When I'm like, you're the ones who wow. put these words on me from the beginning. Mm. Um, and so I think that there's a reality to that, that we're like, this is actually more you doing it than us. Um, in many ways, you're the ones that give this po- these words more power. You are the ones who fear these words. Whereas I can simply say that this is, this is an experience that I can't deny. And most of that is actually because of you (laughs) and Mm. like meaning cisgender straight people. Um, When I can, when I've learned how to abide in Christ in my experience. It reminds me of, of what was it? Joseph, right. Who said like what you meant for, what you meant for my, my trouble. Mm -hmm. Am I frozen again? No, you're not. Well, your video's frozen, but we can Am still I there? hear you. Oh, thank God. <laughs> okay, like what what you meant for my destruction, you know, God meant for my blessing. Mm. Like God was going to use this in my life. And I, I hear that in, in your story, yeah. Josh. Like what people meant as an insult, what people meant to put you down. And what many, I think, Christians would say is just is nothing but a burden in your life. Mm-hmm. God is like, no, I, I didn't mean it to be that way you know it there's actually something way more powerful going on mm-hmm. than anyone could ever like put on yeah. you yeah and and it's worth it i mean we've we've noticed i've noticed over here in conversation that there's that sometimes yeah sometimes a lot of what we're talking about does expose the levels of genuine homophobia that are still amongst christians because I know that some of my colleagues at Living Out, some of the speakers team who present in a more gay way, cause people more problems than mm-hmm. I do because I present yeah. nice and safely. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, that's because a lot of my story is trying to hide the reality of sexuality and be part of a minority group for a lot of my life. And and I, and I just think that it raises interesting questions. I, when you're talking to people and they're saying, well, of course, would prefer it was you. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes it's because they're an Anglican church. They want me as an Anglican minister. But sometimes it's because um, I'm a safer option yeah. uh, than, than some of my colleagues. And that it raises some interesting yeah. questions around, mm. um, yeah, around pe- back, back to people's fear and back to homophobia and back to um, mm. if somebody presents as gay in any way, that must mean that they have a gay identity. That must mean that they're ungodly in this area. Yeah. Um, when I just got used to not presenting 
as gay because I didn't want anybody to ever find out that I was. Yeah. It reminds me of, um, I was actually listening to a podcast um, about the history of the show Will and Grace and like how they put it oh, all together. Oh, I started that one. And it's really interesting because they had this whole concept that they knew the only way that they could get this to work is if they made you think that basically Will is just a almost straight man. Like mm. you just wanted to pretend that the only thing about him that's gay is that not even that he would want to have gay sex. It's just, it's simply just that he is more drawn around guys. Like that's how straight they wanted him to be. They just wanted him to be right there. Cause they knew if they had him any gayer than that, then the show would never, never happen because it was not even about actually him being gay. It was really about how feminine he was mm. and the feminization of it. But yeah, I, I have run into that as well. Ed, in different things of people going, Hey, let's have someone else speak because you're going to cause some oh speak. Oh my gosh. Some, and, and you know, it's, it's one of those things of, I can, I can have a space for someone in their journey that, Hey, I'm not going to be the person to lead them, you know, towards that initial opening of exploring what, what's going on in their heart towards gay people. Um, mm. But there is a thing of, we put, we're putting even, I would say even critics are putting more things on this identity than what we are. And yet it plays a part in our lives, like kind of getting back into the Bible of identity in the Bible. One of the things I love to point out is that um, you have so many ways that the Bible still engages with people's um, like history and story and experience long throughout all of their stuff. I love Elizabeth. You said something earlier in this season about how God doesn't um, change your story, changes your trajectory. Yes, yeah. And stuff. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I found that so powerful of like, God wants us to abide in our, in him with every aspect of who we are and bringing that. The thing, the one that always stands out to me is the fact that Rahab in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews is still mentioned as a prostitute. She's still yeah. literally mentioned. Rahab the prostitute is one of the greatest examples of Don't faith. forget who she is. Don't forget. Don't forget. <laughs> prostitute. <laughs> yeah. Like these things. And in Revelation, it talks about people of every tribe, language, and tongue. Like mm-hmm. these cultural identities, these life experiences, all of these things are not even necessarily saying these are the greatest parts of their identity, but these are aspects of them that have even led them to this point. Absolutely. And I think, Ed, to some of the points that you were making earlier of the ways that identity has connected you to yourself and other people, like our identity gives hope to people who feel hopeless, who feel like they're the only ones. Um, You know, even this podcast and Ed, your podcast, you said as well, like people come to us and say, wow, thank you so much for embracing something about your identity that I couldn't do forever because I didn't know that there was anybody else like me out there. So, you know, what a gift, what a gift is Rahab to, you know, sex workers because she is a picture of how deeply their creator loves them and wants to place them into the story of redemption. Like, this is fantastic. The thing I like to point out to people with that, with Rahab still being mentioned as a prostitute, even in Hebrews, is I'm like, do you know the flare-up that would happen if I told people I still identify as a sex worker now? Like, if I was like, I am a sex worker, but I'm not actually a sex worker anymore. And they'd be like, well, then why do you identify that way? I'm like, I don't know. Rahab is identified that way. Like... (laughs) (laughs) Like that would be even more scandalous than using gay terminology. Mm-hmm. And it's just, isn't it? It's what I think sometimes it's just a lack of empathy for people as well. So yes. mm. I, I really worry again in the UK context. And I've made, I've made this point is in a, in a review of one of the, the books that's come out here is if we say police language, that people are thinking I don't even I I'm not even being given the language to express what's going on inside my heart and my mind. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We're just going to make it even more impossible for the the teenager, for the twenty something Christian, yes. to say this is what I'm going through. Because I think I, I 
whatever I say might be wrong, let alone what I'm talking about and how people might respond to that. And we've got to, I, I, we've got to keep on telling the stories of, of how powerful it is and it was when we first discovered that there were other people like us. And I can yes. remember sitting downstairs reading Wes's book, Washington Waiting, mm. when I first came across it and just weeping uh, mm. because I suddenly realised there was somebody else out there like me who was talking yes. about my experience and who knew what it was, who knew what it was to be a Christian who wanted to live all for Jesus, but also who had an experience in, in the whole area of sexuality that was similar to mine. And we've got to allow people to have that moment yeah. and to have the language to talk about that moment. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. if we so police language that they, they can't, they, they can't have that moment, it's going to be a disaster. And it's not just for them because tying in a lot of what we're saying, what I, one of the things I find remarkable about my ministry for living out, whether I'm speaking at a church or doing a training event or talking to people about the podcast, is that so many of the people that have connected with us, actually sexuality is not the issue at all. The thing they most identify with is the fact that there are people being open mm-hmm. and honest about the heart. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I find... Uh, I know a lot about a lot of people's sex lives now because they talk about them with me. Like, I'm thinking, why are you telling me? Why? I'm not saying you're the first person I've ever told this, but me and my wife haven't been able to have sex for the last 20 years or whatever it is. And I'm there going, but yes. what they identify with is this is a person who you can be open yes. and honest with about some hard things. And I was listening, I was speaking to somebody this morning. He said, you know, my daughter, he's um, anorexic. She loves your, she loves your podcast. Mm. And she loves the because there's the connection mm. she you know these are people that go through hard things and are staying rooted in jesus and and are, are trying to uh, you know trying to remember that they're loved by jesus even as they struggle with really tough things yeah. and and people identify with that mm-hmm. and yes. that is what i'm thrilled about and i don't want to lose that because that is one of the things that most excites me about about doing ministry in this space yeah. is that so many mm. people identify with us because of mm. openness and honesty some of the grief and sufferings that come from being part of the minority group oh Oh, that's great. Yeah, it's that vulnerability. It's that, like, even Elizabeth, Mm -hmm. you talked about that thing of wanting to be known by God and known by ourselves and Mm -hmm. others and people. And, like, you know, Psalm 139 of, like, search me and know me and all of these things. And and the way that vulnerability invites vulnerability. And I I think that has even led to something that I've been trying to get better at practicing is I think I've realized when I engage with those people who are really against identity stuff, I'm just, like, I don't have... I don't have the time. I don't have the energy to try and justify myself to you, to be honest. But what I've been actually working in, in that whole thing of being able to have space for other people in like all of who they are, trying to make space for that person to be all of who they are and actually inviting to know their story, because I will always promise you there is a story why they're at where they are at with sexuality Absolutely. And many times it it can be so many different things. It can be just the very fact that the pressures that they put, that they have felt in their life of how they have to perform and how then that makes them feel with other people who do not, you know, either processing Mm -hmm. in that vulnerability and all of those things. And being able to do that is the practice I'm working on. Um, (laughs) I haven't gotten it. Um, in trying to be able to see the person behind the the fear, the person behind the judgment, yes. the person behind the homophobia, and being able to see, wow, there is a lot that's led, leading you to this place. And yeah, like how to walk with that person in that. It's not, might not be my place to, and it might not be my, it's not my responsibility to work, walk with that person in it, but. Sometimes it's your very own family members or your very own people in your life or your church. Absolutely. Um, so absolutely. I remember there was somebody who was like so, so troubled by what I do and, you know, really wanted me to know what a problem it was. And I was, I wasn't out to them. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, I feel like I have to be because some of the things that they're sharing are really offensive yeah. to people that I love dearly including myself. So I I was like, hey, I just want you to know the things that you're saying, they hurt me because they're hurting. They, these are words of harm to people I love, but they're also, they hurt me because this is about me. Yeah. This is my story. And as soon as I said something, the floodgates opened mm. and it was like true confession. Like this person just shared all of this stuff with me. And I was like, Oh, I didn't, I didn't expect this, but it's the same of what you're saying, Ed, like people just, 
once you're able to be vulnerable, other people feel there's a space to be vulnerable and you start to have empathy and understand, oh, okay, maybe part of the reason why this is such a threat to you is because you're, you have an internal struggle with your own experience of identity and sexuality. And part of what we do at Kaleidoscope when we have like church trainings or allyship trainings is we have a segment called understanding your own story. And we invite people into this practice of telling their story of sexuality and gender identity. And we have like this list of questions and they pick from a few of those questions around what was puberty like Mm -hmm. for you? What were some of those? Have you ever had a crush on someone where you knew that nothing was going to be reciprocated? Have you had, have you had experience where you were embarrassed about your own body or self and then watching people realize, oh, I guess I have more in common with this experience than I thought. Yeah. Like maybe being straight isn't really all it's yeah. wrapped up to be. Maybe being cis, cisgender isn't as easy as I thought. And it, it makes room for empathy yeah. and deeper storytelling. Yeah. And, and that's so precious, isn't it? Because if we got over the identity, if we got over policing identity language, we might actually be able to have conversations where we do find out that we've got much more in common. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, that actually, you know, and I certainly found this in pastoral ministries that so often I've been taking the lessons I've learned about God and myself and the world through my experience of sexuality. And I've just been transposing them across into somebody's experience of anxiety or somebody's addiction to pornography or whatever else it is. And 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 actually it's it's if we don't get caught up in the identity politics, but actually just take the time to listen to individual stories um, that we will find that there are connections, and and actually, I found I found that being open about my sexuality, using words that communicate what's going on inside, and that people can understand about my sexuality, has provided loads of opportunities to connect with people, and then it's provided loads of opportunities to actually find out that 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 actually what I thought divided us isn't that yeah. isn't that massive because I'm taking and using my experiences and yeah they might have fancy somebody the opposite sex rather than somebody the same sex or they might be struggling with sexual fantasy um of you know somebody the opposite sex rather than the same sex but I can you know we've actually got very similar experiences yeah. and yeah. and that really helps me um again just recognize that yep the identity language is helpful to describe yeah. a different experience but also um once you've broken through that you actually find out that I'm in less of a minority group than I thought. Struggling with sexual temptation is not just for sexual minorities. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's for all, most people. And being open and honest has yeah. opened up opportunities to, to talk with others and for them to be open and honest with me. So as we wrap up here, that's a perf- that's a little bit of a segue into... I don't want to <laughs> stop. This has been so <laughs> I much know. fun. I know. That's a little warning to us, isn't it? Well, no, I just like give people that, but don't, don't, don't stop the podcast yet. Cause I'm really excited to get to this question that just came into my mind. I think another, you know, we're talking about reclaiming identity. Um, and especially we've talked about identity in Christ and how identity in Christ can many, has many times been weaponized to like get rid of your gay experiences, to get rid of your sexuality and all of these things. I would love to hear from you guys for our, LGBT, same-sex attracted listeners, um, queer listeners, everywhere in between, for what are some thoughts that come to mind on how to pursue your identity in Christ, abiding in Christ in ways that are holistically incorporating all of our experiences? Like, is there anything that comes to mind of what that actually looks like in a reclaiming way? Yeah, I mean, I'm highly attuned to a certain type of male beauty. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's that's part of my experience of sexuality. Um, it, you know, and it's <laughs> a bit of a perfection, but there's a certain type of male beauty that just blows me away. Um, and that used to always lead to guilt and shame and embarrassment. And I'm just now using that much more as a chance to worship, a call to worship, mm. but not a call to worship the beautiful guy that's just appeared on the screen or just walked past me in the street. Wow. But as a, call, a call to worship the the origins of the beauty. And the origins of the beauty I see in any other human being are from God. They, they've created in his image. So when I see beauty in a man, I'm taking that as a call to worship the God who's 
beauty I've just seen a little glimpse of in their beauty. And actually, the great thing about his beauty is that it won't perish, spoil, or fade. Yeah. Now, I'm old enough now that I'm meeting some of the guys that I was mesmerized by when we were teenagers. And turns out they're now middle aged balding men. Um, <laughs> but, you know, Jesus' Jesus's beauty never fades. Um, and I, I, you know, when I see beauty, I'm trying to use that as a as an opportunity to learn how to worship the source of all true beauty, which is God Himself in Christ, and to be more and more mesmerised by Him. So I'm taking that moment and saying, "Yep, this has led to idolatry in the past, but this is an opportunity mm. uh, to worship God Himself in Christ." Mm. That's great. Wow, that is so good. And with that. That British accent, it just sounds so lovely. Like, I feel like if an American person was saying this, it would be like, so when I walk down the street and I see somebody really sexy, I'm like, okay, God. But no, you're like, if I fancy someone's a particular type of male beauty, I just love it. Yes. Uh, yeah. Any Any thoughts that come to mind for you, Elizabeth? Yeah. I mean, I think it kind of goes back to some of what we were just talking about is I, I love my identity because it, it frees me from the trappings of perfection that I longed for and continue to struggle with all of my life. I just wanted to be, and Josh, I think we talked about this recently on a personal phone call. Yeah. I just wanted to be this particular kind of Christian. You know, mm -hmm. I wanted to be the ideal model Christian woman. And every time I ever thought, when I looked in the mirror when before and said, you could just say it. Yeah. The part of why I didn't want to say it really was because then that picture of perfect christianity is shattered and i can't live like that i don't yeah. know what that looks like um so it, it's like it's bittersweet because you know the sweetness is now i don't need to be that person anymore and i never needed to be that person to begin with that was never what god called me to be and now i have no choice but to embrace it because I've embraced a part of my truth and my identity that I can't really take back. I literally got a tattoo about my bisexuality, so I couldn't take it back. <laughs> um, but the, the bitterness is the struggle for me is then learning what does it look like now for me to say, like, God, what does it look like for me to be a follower of Christ as a queer person in this in ministry that most people do not find palatable. If 11 year old Elizabeth saw me, she would have run for the hills, like whatever happened to me. And now it's like, no, I just need to figure out what does this look like? What is the beauty of this kind of relationship with God that isn't seeking perfection, but is seeking authenticity look like? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I, I, what I, I, I love that. And like, but both of what you shared, cause I think it gets to a core kind of what we were talking about with vulnerability, but it's this, it's this need to be witnessed as humans. Like we, we have this importance of ha being seen um, specifically by God and, and also by other people as an extension of God. And when God can see us as we see a beautiful person down on the street and when God can see how we are engaging with our stories in ways to lift other people up that like, there is a power of when we, when I can pursue experiences of being witnessed by God and being showered with the love of God in the midst of that experience, the beauty that can come from that and like the the healing and the glory of god that can be revealed um in that moment of saying this is something that i might have hidden this is something that i might have felt could never have been incorporated into my spiritual life and yet here it is um as part of part of god's masterpiece so i hope listeners that you all can pursue those kinds of experiences um 
in your lives so that you can grow deeper into Christ, um, no, being known more fully and knowing God more fully and others. Um, yeah. And Amen like to that. Really? To yeah. Yeah. Awesome. It is. This Ed, was thanks such for a delight. Us. Ed. Seriously. <laughs> it's we, we it's been to... the life of me too. Really, really great. Would love to chat yeah. with you more sometime. And thank you yeah. for all the work that you're doing with Living Out, with Absolutely. the book that you've written, um, with the ways that you're changing changing this conversation and culture over across the yep. pond. <laughs> yeah. It's really, Absolutely. really fantastic. Awesome. Well, everyone, um, link to the Living Out podcast and to Ed's book will be in the show notes um, for you to check out. And um, we are really excited as we're wrapping up this season. We will have some big announcements coming as we wrap up the season. So be listening. Um, and we will talk to you all later. Bye, everyone. Bye, friends. Bye.